Get to the church, blind! Get to the church, blind! Go! Now! I'm Pete Mitchell, and he's Peyton Jones, and you're listening to Hardcore Church Planning, the companion podcast for the Church Planner Podcast and Church Planner Magazine. Each week, we'll bring you interviews from planners who are in the trenches making it happen right now. These active church planners bear it all, share their successes, their failures, and what they'd wish they'd known when they were first starting out. Listen in to discover how God is working in their church plan. Hey, church planner, this is Peyton Jones. I am flying solo again, and this is almost like a part two to The Last Hardcore. But uh, today, my guest is a repeater. This is going to be Sean McCain, who is on with me from our last podcast, which was on uh, Anglicanism and uh, what's going on. But gosh, there was so much we did not get to on that. I wanted to hear more about what was going on in the world of Anglican church planning, but you, of course, can always tap into Always Forward, their podcast on church planning, and go to always-forward.com to really find out and connect with them on that. But exciting things are happening there. So I'm going to welcome my guest, Sean. Uh, you are a minister in the Anglican Church. Uh, loved the last podcast. Can't wait to hear your passion today. Welcome onto the show. Man, it's good to be back with you, Peyton. Thanks for having us. Cool. Well, hey, man. Um, so we heard your story in the last one, so I won't make you say it again. If you guys want to hear the story of where Sean's come from, you can hear him and Dan on our last episode. But uh, Sean, one of the things we didn't do, and I'm, I'm kicking myself for this, is we did not ask the question, what is Anglicanism? So I was just wondering if you could do that. And then I want to talk to you about a topic that is your passion, and we'll come back to that. So what is Anglicanism? That is um, such a gigantic question. So my my little caveat here, I am not uh, a scholar on Anglicanism. <laughs> I am, I'm not a, the professional. I, I can't be the expert here, but I can. And, there, and it's such a complicated question as it is. But I can say Anglicanism. Um, and honestly, when I've told people I'm an Anglican priest, they say, like, what, do you, what is that even? You know, do you have to be. Is it Anglo? Is that what this is about? And uh, so there's or Angelican. You get all kinds of interesting takes on it. Um, but really, it comes from a phrase um, that refers to the church that has come out of England, the Church of England. And uh, it's really at its heart isn't doesn't have like a set of theology on its own apart from the church Catholic or the Christian tradition. But really, the heart of Anglicanism to get down to it is to merely receive the faith that has been given to us by the church um, as articulated in the creeds, submitting to scriptures, um, receiving well the traditions from the fathers in the early church, and learning to become uh, the kind of Christian that uh, doesn't just have lip service for the right answers, but actually embodies and takes on a way of following Jesus that's stable, um, that's ancient, that's really rooted, but also very present in the world and having a heart for neighbors. So, I mean, some of our Anglican heroes in, in in Anglican history are folks who were killed for translating the Bible into English, you know, so, um, or Cramner who, who wrote the prayer book, who put together the first prayer book in 1549. Um, these were um, like kind of scandalous 
um, events in the life of the church at the time. But the heart behind all of them were to really simple pastoral impulses, like people should know what the word of God says in their own language, or how do you disciple an entire nation of people? Well, you teach them to pray. Let's put together a prayer book that's accessible to regular folks. So that's really kind of the heart of, of, of the Anglican tradition is receiving well the church Catholic and its faith and its tradition, and then appropriating it in really proficient ways for a contemporary context, wherever you may be. And a lot of people think, well, so Anglicanism is this like European thing. Well, if you fast forward to today and you look at the Anglican uh, the Anglican family across the globe, we call it the communion. Um, I think it's like, I've heard this many times. Um, I can't point you to a source, but basically there are more Anglicans in Nigeria than there are in all of Western Europe. Um, and your average Anglican is a an African-American woman with children, which I think is quite the opposite of what we might have a stereotype of like your typical Anglican to be. So there's this huge global wealth of multi-ethnic, diverse um, expression, even within this um, Anglican family. So it's no monolith, I guess is what I mean to say. Um, but there's there's a recognizable heart of Anglicanism that is this like evangelical Catholicism, if that makes any sense. This this impulse to receive the the gospel revealed to us, not only in scripture and primarily in scripture, but also through the traditions and in the sacraments. Um, and then being becoming the kinds of people in our worship life together that actually can um, can announce and embody and demonstrate that good news to our neighbors in ways that they can understand and package so. I dig it, man. That's such a cool answer. And I think, you know, just thinking of the Anglicans throughout history and even in modern day, they have always been hugely evangelistic. Wesley, Whitfield, um, C.S. Lewis, who, again, you mentioned putting it in language that people could understand. And you had mentioned earlier about uh, mere Christianity, where he just broadcasts. I just, I got a book coming out in May. Cha-ching! Uh, hey, cool. That's my shameless plug. And, and I mentioned, you know, I talk about C.S. Lewis, that, that for an American today, Britain was way ahead of America in, you know, postmodern, post-Christian thought. And uh, the secularization of, of Great Britain preceded America. So when we listen to the Anglicans from, say, the 50s, you know, or the 40s, and in the case of mere Christianity, uh, post-war Europe, you, you've basically got... Um, C.S. Lewis, who is speaking to where America's at today. It's taken mm. us that long to catch up. And so there's this resurgence in uh, interest in C.S. Lewis, largely because he's making sense to us right now. Whereas before it was kind of like maybe some intellectuals read him, people read him in college, maybe. Uh, but right now, he is touching the nerve that America's in, you know, right where we're at. But, but all that to say, um, even things like the Alpha Course, which took Britain by storm, was Anglican. We, we, we spoke about this off air. Um, Rico Tice, who came up with Christianity Explored, which I used in my first church plant, was Anglican. And, and so Anglicanism has always done two things well, in my opinion. Number one, it's always been very evangelistic. And number two, we talked about the ancientness of it, but often with uh, the ancientness, there there can come 
almost a superiority, you know, a, a, a kind of, hey, we have this ancient thing going for us and we're better. And the second thing that I think Anglican, uh, Anglicanism has always done well is it's maintained a humble posture um, despite its its roots in something that is that is very ancient and very old, um, it's still maintained that sense of humility and willingness to work with, uh, you know, uh, other members of the body of Christ. And that, that's refreshing, man. So, yeah. uh, without, look, I promised you if we got on here. And we've, we've got our problems too. <laughs> exactly. Excuse me. We've got our warts. But I, I, can I just say, I think that there, we could say it like Anglicanism at its best yeah. is actually not about Anglicanism at all, uh, but about the gospel and the gospel being announced, embodied, and demonstrated in ways that people can really have access to. That is, I think, the thing that drew me to Anglicanism. And when you see it on fire throughout history at its best, that's what it actually looks like. Mm, I dig that. And so what you're saying really is Anglicanism is pretty, but she has a wooden wooden leg and a glass eye. Oh, totally. totally. Oh, yeah. Gotcha. So, Absolutely. <laughs> like every other part of the body of Christ, the body of Christ herself and and so here's the deal, man. One one of the things I mentioned in the last podcast that I had bumped into an Anglican who had uh, uh, he was he was very much involved in church planning, very interested in he himself was an Anglican church planner, which on a future show I want to unpack more. But he told me if I got in touch with you, he said you need to talk to him or get him talking about sacramental missiology and. And right away, that piqued me because I thought, okay, he's going to have something to say. Um, go. <laughs> yeah. No, tell, tell us well, what that is and uh, why it's important sure. to church planning. Well, um, so some background about even that phrase. I, I, came, I went to Fuller Seminary or my MDiv and, and just had an incredible time there. God did some amazing things in my life there. And one of the huge contributions um, that was made to me there was an introduction to Leslie Newbigin, um, who has become a hero of sorts for me. And one thing I noticed with Newbigin all the time, who was an Anglican, um, but you couldn't, you never, you never came out and said it, you know, like NT Wright, these guys, they wear it so well, you kind of don't know they're Anglicans because it's just not the point for them. But, um, but they're still a product of this tradition. And one of the things that Newbigin always talked about was, um, the church being the first fruits of the new creation, the church being the sign and foretaste of like the kingdom of God. And you would hear these echoes in all of the missional church literature, which was like staple diet for us at Fuller missional church. And so, so new big, and I kind of began to realize this kind of Godfather of the missional church, um, uh, you know, movement, if you can call it that, or that world of thought, and what's so interesting to me about that is that those phrases and those terms, they stuck out to me. And I, in, upon digging, I mean, I got to take all kinds of really great uh, classes at Fuller. One of them was a seminar on liturgical theology. And it was then that I bumped into those same terms, but used in a completely different context. Of course, um, Newbigin's quoting scripture. But since then, the church has used those phrases to talk about um, sacraments. And so here you have the missional church using sacramental language. Um, I'm not sure if maybe they all knew that they were using sacramental language. They were just using the language that Newbigin was using. Um, and so as I kind of began to drill down, I wondered what does uh, the sacraments have to do with mission? 
and started exploring that relationship. And, you know, to be honest, this is, this is a demon doctor of ministry project for me at Neshota house. And, um, I am fascinated about this and love to study it, but it's actually really personal for me as uh, someone growing up, you know, uh, an evangelical missional Christian, um, and then discovering the church Catholic and the sacraments and the beauty of the liturgy and all these things, uh, like a treasure chest of, of, tools and ways of being a Christian um, and doing mission in the world. And so this project and this question is really me trying to reconcile with myself, these two different um, identities that have, have come into being in my life. So it's, that's kind of the idea is sacramental as a starting point for missiology. If uh, I have a lot of great friends who don't have like a real deep sacramental Catholic sacramentality or something or an Anglican sacramentality, um, but they're very much on mission in the world. So I began asking, so let's say you have someone who's, who is um, um, convinced that God is at work in the world and wants to participate in his mission. This is like the missional church question. What is God doing in the neighborhood? How do we get in on that? What if, if, if you have that and you, and you don't have a, a real dense sacramental grounding, what difference does it make when you introduce one? with or without sacraments in the life of a church and a community in a person's life, does it really make a difference in their mission, in their missiology? Um, so that's kind of the heart of that really, that's like a $20 word, I, sacramental missiology. Well, I think it's a huge, it's a huge place to just pause for a second. And, and if we're honest, right, um, Sean, we, we, we don't, uh, honestly, when, when you go to plant a church, People aren't thinking about communion, and yet it's the kind of thing where Jesus was like, look, as often as you come together, I mean, it, it was a big deal. You know, when Jesus mm-hmm. introduced it, he wasn't like, hey, um, maybe every few months when you think about it, or as an afterthought, you know, when you got a business meeting and you want to make it more spiritual and mix it up a bit, or, you know, hey, when you're on a retreat, or hey, you know, it was as often as you come together, and yet... I, I would I would say that that communion in itself, and I know you know we're, we're talking broader when we use the word sacrament, but you know it, it really is not um, something that's in the forefront of everyone's mind. And so when when I first came across your podcast, um, Always Forward, I listened to the first episode, and what I found fascinating was um, one of your goals was to to introduce into the church planning conversation, things that others, other, other denominations or other people or other networks weren't talking about. And that, mm. that got my attention. And I thought, that's true. Um, these things are not being mentioned in the conversation of church planning, and they need to be. Absolutely. I mean, this is kind of the the, the heartbeat of everything that we're doing there is, is, is not, and, it's, and I would say there's a danger here in saying um, we don't want to um, instrumentalize the sacraments or, or communion and, and kind of take it in our hands and say, okay, what does this do? What does this accomplish? How do we use this as some sort of other add-on to plant a church successfully? But more, it's, I think, a little bit um, deeper than that. I, I know it is. It's it, in Jesus's own promises to us about, even in the Great Commission, if you think about that, go therefore into all the world. Well, first of all, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go into all the world, making disciples um, and baptizing them. The sacramental commission, it's like it's, it's just right there. And 
teaching them everything that I've commanded you. And surely I'll be with you to the end of the age. Um, I've always, I always read the great commission, um, kind of from this, um, evangelistic, um, you know, go out and tell people, make disciples, but never really saw that it was shaded by this sacramental underpinning of baptism and, and, and formation through teaching people what Jesus had commanded. And one of those things he commanded, like you said, was do this, do this meal, um, do it in remembrance of me. And then he kind of punctuates the whole thing saying, and surely I will be with you to the end of the age. As for me, I can't read that anymore as this kind of like sentimental, like, oh, Jesus is with us. How nice. But I think he meant that really concretely. I think he meant that he would be with us and not in just some sort of sentimental way, but in something pushing that envelope a lot further. And I, I'm just curious, what did Jesus have in view when he commissioned his disciples? He he certainly had in view, or he at least was thinking about the meal that he gave them and the command to baptize others. So there's just kind of this really interesting layer of um, sacraments and what's, what is their role in our lives? And what is that, how, how does that unfold as we go out into the world doing things like having a barbecue and inviting our neighbors over or something like planting a church um, or raising a family. Those things I think uh, Jesus might've had in view as being really critical to being able to accomplish those things in a way that he's inviting us to participate. Does that make sense? Like as Christians, it here's the makes, way I'm inviting yeah, you a lot into sense. my life. Yeah. Oh, so, so, so one oh, of, sorry, oh, man, go ahead. I, I didn't mean to cut you off there. Um, no, go ahead. I, I repeat that last part. That was pretty powerful. Say that last, okay. that last part. Um, which last part are you talking about? About inviting <laughs> inviting him into our lives. That that's oh the yeah. Whole, yeah. So in this kind of this get down to um, I could unpack this a little bit further, but um, the what Jesus is doing is not sending us out apart from him, but he's actually inviting us into the life of God to work with him. To to participate in his life as it unfolds in the neighborhood. So I think. Uh, the Great Commission, if you understand it as being sent out and abandoned, um, you're not you're perhaps not hearing it the way that Jesus has given it to us. And I think he meant it more um, to kind of take on my yoke ish sounding, you know, like enter into the life of God with me as we go out into the neighborhood, doing the things um, that God does, like adopting orphans through the waters of baptism, you know, and and teaching them everything that I've announced, everything I've commanded, the way that God does things, the kingdom of God, you know, and then, uh, and surely I will be with you to the end of the age. I'm not going anywhere. I'm not going to leave you hanging. I'm not going to send you into the neighborhood on your own. Surely I'm going to be with you. There is, um, to me, something, um, packaged in that that's, that's participatory, that's near, um, and is, and is not merely symbolic, if that makes sense. Um, for instance, we don't plant churches or do evangelisms, uh, evangelism in a way that points to some reality out there or some God that's far off um, or even like, hey, pray this prayer, raise your hand. And when you die, sure, your body's going to be left here and all this is going to burn to hell in a handbasket. But you know what? We become angels and we go into the clouds and have this eternal heaven experience. Um, not to say that heaven's not part of the salvation plan, it certainly is. But that's kind of like N.T. Wright calls it, uh, you know, he kind of describes it a little bit like an airport terminal. Like it's the mm -hmm. place between the place where we're actually heading. Um, life after life after death, that's what he calls it. 
And there's this in view in Revelation, this like new heavens and new earth, the resurrection of the body. It's this fantastic view of where God is taking history. And if we look at um, if we look at the Great Commission and see Jesus pointing us to go on this activity that in which we point people to some distant future or some healing reality that's not here, but it's somewhere else. That's mm. to me, sounds like a really a symbolic participation. You know, it's two separate things, one thing pointing to the other, but what it sounds like in the commission, Jesus is inviting us to is something that's not merely symbolic. Certainly there's part of that, but it's actually participatory. You are, mm. he is with you. He's not apart from you. And the work you do, even the words he said to the disciples, look, you're, okay, you're going to be put in situations where you're not going to know what to say, but I will give you the words to say. He's not somewhere else. He's actually closer than to ourselves than we are to ourselves at times, it feels. Yeah, you know what I mean? Not not to give a shameless plug for my book again, ching but I am shameless. Um, but but the next book, it it actually, that's that's the underlying premise of the book, is that the um, that commission is as you go do these things, I will be with you. That, that mm. there's a connection between them. And so that special power and presence of Christ is found as we do those things. And, and, and that's the attachment. It's almost like a conditional promise that, look, I'm, I'm going to be here, but particularly as you go and do these things, um, you will, you will experience me. And, and I love the sacramental, um, element of that that you introduce here because um, one of the things in hey go away cat this is a podcast we can't have pets on our podcast <laughs> it's just not on so the, the, the rea- <laughs> that I'm trying to nonchalantly kick my cat out of here <laughs> as we're doing this yeah. but uh, we don't edit stuff like that so um, that's real life man leave it, and leave it in yeah leave, leave it, in. it in but but here's a deal right you've got so, so one of my passions is interactive church and what has long bothered me is so in my first book, I wrote about the fact that, um, you know, through things like alpha and Christianity explored, they introduced a new way of engaging people. And I, I would say it was new in the sense of they would set these dinners up and they would, you know, do all that. Well, we, we accidentally started a church in a Starbucks sitting around, talking. And so when that became a church plant, it was very natural for us to adopt things that were interactive. But that was the the part that was the teaching part. So yes, there was mm-hmm. monologue, but there was also dialogue. And and so it it was a little bit of a, you know, Paul's proclamation style and his synagogue style, which was conversational. And so we blended that. But what's bothered me ever since um has been and and I've talked to Christian leaders about this and I've spoken to pastor friends and they they usually raise their eyebrows a few grin and say I kind of get where you're going but mm-hmm. I've used the word liturgical to say surely there has to be interaction in what we call the 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 praise or the worship time and and that's what appeals to me about liturgy is you're not passive you are an mm-hmm. active interactive pro- there's something about the worship of a liturgy that resonates with me again, because I'm all about interactive church. Um, I love the idea that I might stand, I might kneel, I might, um, you know, there's all these different things, but I'm engaging with this God actively, intentionally during this part of the service. Totally. And, and that's, I think at the, at the bottom of that, 
we're really talking, this is the school of thought called sacramentology. We're, we're saying how, how is the earthly reality participating in the heavenly reality? Mm. What are the things here that God is using to communicate um, his goodness? What, what's, the, what's kind of on the ground that he's picking up and saying, like Jesus walking around telling parables, yeah, you know, it's kind of like that. The kingdom of God's kind of like this. It's kind of like that. Um, that's ultimately this this suspicion that, like Gerard Manley Hopkins in his poem, he says, um, you, you may have heard this, the world is charged with the grandeur of God. Yeah. And that that kind of um, enchants reality. It's not in some sort of weird, like pagan witchcraft kind of way, but this, like God isn't somewhere else. He's present and he's at work. And that mm-hmm. suspicion is what launches us into mission in the first place. That's we, we participate in his mission because we know he's at work. We're convinced Amen. somehow. And so, but, but that, how is God present in the world? Um, that's ultimately we're talking sacramentology. And the reason I think this is really interesting is I, I read uh, one of my heroes, Michael Ramsey, he wrote a great book called the gospel in the Catholic church. And I'm paraphrasing. I've actually, have you ever read a book and you swore someone said something, but they didn't actually say it. They talked around it for a long time and you said it in your head and then you attribute it to them. This is what happened with me with this. He he was talking about the Eucharist and the liturgy, and he's and basically my paraphrase memory of him writing was basically saying what more. And this was like me planting a church, so I'm like totally reading into this or hearing something. And he said, "What more missional thing can you do than provide the real presence of Jesus in your neighborhood?" And I thought, yeah. Isn't that what we're doing when we celebrate the Eucharist? We're, we're not bringing Jesus about, but Jesus has actually promised to be with us to the end of the age, like he did in the commission. And not in just sentimental ways, but in like a particular way in this meal. And even in John 6, when people go, oh, okay, well, that's Anglicans, you know, they're, they're weird Catholics or, you know, they believe that God's actually somehow present in, in, in the communion in bread and wine. Um, as if that's like some sort of impossibility. But even when you look at John six and Jesus dealing with people who are dealing with the same thing that he said, look, unless you eat my flesh, unless you drink my blood, you have no life in you. And then everyone started kind of rustling around and the disciples were like, Oh man, this is, this is a tough teaching. And Jesus turned to them and he, he didn't say, look, symbolically guys, you know, take it easy. No, he doubled down. He said, I tell you, truly, truly, I tell you, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. Mm. And the disciples, you could see them like we do just wrestle with like, how in the world is God present in, like, how are we supposed to do that? Like, how God? And he, uh, he, he sees everyone leaving and he, his, his disciples have that look on his face, I'm sure. And he says to them, are you going to leave also? Um, and they say, well, where else are we going to go? You're the ones, you're the Holy One of Israel. You're the one with the words of eternal life. Mm. And so they're kind of stuck with this mystery that's really uncomfortable, that's spiritual and heavenly, but also earthly and material and concrete. And that is the place, that mystery is the place of, of sacramentology, which is at the same time, the same question we're asking in missiology and mission. God, how are you present in this neighborhood? How do I participate? Um, what's your heart here? Uh, and not in just concrete sentiment, or I mean, sorry, like, uh, you know, um, thoughtful, sentimental ways, but like in real concrete material ways, God, how do I participate in your action? How do I put my body to use to participate in what the kingdom of God's actually doing here? Um, we can answer that really particularly in being swallowed up 
into the life of God through the waters of baptism and the Eucharist. And then this is what's a trip. At the end of our Anglican services, we have this commission. Having stood up and said what Christians believe in the creed, having been caught up in the drama of the gospel throughout the liturgy, having been basically grafted into the living body of Christ in our neighborhood through baptism and Eucharist, we're then unleashed into the neighborhood um, as living members of Christ's body to go and do the way Jesus does. Um, to me, that is like the most dangerous kind of missional posture a church community could probably take mm. is to take that seriously. Does that make sense? Oh yeah. Yeah. So for, for us, it, that's like that. Oh, go ahead. Well, I was going to say it, 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 it's interesting because one of the things that often happens is, you know, that a, that a pastor will, um, for example, he'll, he'll, will set up church like an audience. And then the entire time that the people of God are together is more like a, a theater experience, right? There might, they right. might sing along, but really they're passive listeners. And at the end, the, the, the pastor might say, now go do stuff, right? Mm. Even though the whole time we've been together, you've just been a passive recipient and listener. But now I expect when you leave, you're going to, what I love about what you guys are bringing in is, and again, this is very close to my heart. It's, it's some of the stuff I've been arguing, um, that a first century Christianity was an interactive participatory sport rather mm -hmm. than a spectator sport. And so mm -hmm. there's not the same disconnect for a pastor who treats people like an audience, but then is frustrated with them after he dismisses them that they stay an audience. And what I love about what, what you're saying is, no, they are participants all the way through so that when we dismiss them, there's a power. Now go continue what, mm. what you've been doing together collectively as a whole with us. And to me, man, that just super resonates with me. It's, it's, That's, yeah. Yeah. That's really personal for myself. I, I think growing up in evangelical churches, I was always told to repent, you know, or to, to um, ask God for forgiveness. And, and not in like some doom and gloom kind of way, but like I really needed to, you know, and it wasn't until I went to an Anglican church and everyone got on their knees mm. and they said, let's confess our sins before God um, and our neighbor. And, uh, and then we all, we had a moment of silence to think of those things that we needed, like we needed God's help with. And then we actually were given words to repent. Mm. And I was given, it was like hearing a song on a radio that just totally said what you were feeling you're like this is my jam i felt that way about the <laughs> confession of sin you know things like things that i've done things that i've left undone oh man it's just such rich poetic language that kind of just dug out and uh, the things that you needed to confess but also um they taught you how to do it you know it wasn't hey go do this i realized as a youth minister for all those years i was telling kids go make things right with god pray but i wasn't actually holding their hands showing them how to do it and I think mm. the liturgy has that ability to just kind of like uh, shaping surfboards. You you can read books about it, but you really need a master craftsman to take your hands and show you how to shape, you know? And the liturgy does that, I think, with the Christian life in general. Absolutely, man. Well, look, we are out of time yet again. But having said that, what I would like to do is to continue this conversation because, again, um, these are subjects that um, have not really been – uh, big in the church planning conversation. I think you guys are bringing this to it. And we, if you guys are still cool to hang with us, 
Because uh, I got to be honest, like these guys, I'm, I'm, you know, they're not. Look, you think priest and you think a nerd and a geek. Let's just be honest, right? <laughs> um, you think a guy who's a pencil yeah, neck, he's pasty white. You know, you guys are not that. Like the our audience doesn't get to see. Like these are actually cool cats. These are millennials and Gen Xers and. They're pretty cool, and so they're going to blow your stereotype. And there is a growing movement amongst uh, the younger generation going into ministry to embody all of these things that uh, we've been talking about today. So, Sean, before we let you go, um, again, I want to give a shout-out to your podcast, which is alwaysforward.com. And that was my dog, by the way. I have these swivel stools (laughs) under this really cool desk. It looks, my desk looks like a train station. I don't know how to, it's all like bolted steel and, and ancient wood and it's pretty cool. But, uh, I have these stools built into it and, uh, uh, it, my dog walks underneath and swivels them. So apologize for that. But anyways, okay, all that right. to say, um, if you were to get into, cause you know what's coming, right? The end of every episode. So just get ready next time. If you were to get, into a physical fist fight with mm. famous Anglican, former Bishop of Durham, N.T. Wright, who would win? Oh, man. Okay. So I've I've met Tom Wright. He's a great guy. He's a sweetie. And so I'm going to say that I've got this like Mexican thing. In, that's I'm Mexican. So I've got this like cultural, you know, let's fiesta pretty hard and love each other well, but if we need to brawl, we'll brawl. I think I could take him. He's a proper Englishman. Yeah. He's, you know, he's he's the sweetest guy, far more brilliant than me, um, for sure. But when it came down to it, we got caught in an alley, and it was me and him. I think I could take him. I think but it'd be tough too. because he is a bishop too, you know, so you got to have like that reverence. The bishop. <laughs> if you ever seen uh, Flying Circus. The bishop. But no, uh, <laughs> you've never seen that skit, The Bishop? No. How oh, do I need to? Oh, yes. Really? Yes. Okay. It's all done like a, a spy, an old James Bond. Uh, I'll be sending you a link after this. But, okay. uh, but <laughs> everybody's going to go look for that. Yeah. N.T. Wright, you know, he's kind of he's kind of big, you know, he's kind of a big dude. Like he's not he's not. I mean, I don't mean like he's a towering giant. I just mean he's thick. You know, yeah. he's got a little weight behind him. And uh, here comes my train. He might hit like a train. I mean, all we know is sometimes when you corner, you know, even the meekest of animals, they they, they might just, you know. Oh, yeah. They might just pull out their animal side. So he might have an animal side, but I still think he could take him. Well, and he's got, (laughs) see, the the bishops, they got those bishop rings. They got these huge rings. That might be just like brass knuckles. Holy knuckle dusters, much like the holy hand grenade of Antioch. (laughs) I dig it. Well, this is too fun. Brother, this has been great fun, and I appreciate you guys so much. And uh, I will basically uh, just say, if you want to connect with these guys, again, it's always always dashboard.com and Sean thanks for coming on it's good to be here thanks Peyton all right Arnold sign us out remember if you are called to church planting go hardcore or go home you've been listening to hardcore church planting hardcore church planting has been brought to you by the church planner podcast and the church planner magazine which is available in the app store for both Apple and Android devices 
If you like this episode, leave us a positive review. If you didn't like this episode, we'll be happy to give you your money back.